What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. John Dr. J. Nigerian was linebacker for the Chicago Bears before he turned to another kind of contact sport, trading on the Chicago Board Options Exchange. He became a member of the CBOE, NYSE, CME, and CBOT, and worked as a floor trader for some 25 years. John has built and sold a number of companies, including a $750 million exit to E-Trade in September 2016. In this conversation, we discuss the physicality of the old-school trading pits, how Wall Street has evolved over the years, Robin Hood, Davy Day Trader, why John and his brother are building a company to educate investors, and how much of his portfolio is currently in Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation with John, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is Bitsy. The Bitsy exchange allows you to trade confidently. They are the leader in futures, which means they are pioneering futures 2.0. With Bitsy, you can trade next level futures. You are free to choose and combine your margin and settlement assets and trade with up to 100x leverage. You can sign up for a Bitsy Elite membership that gives you unbeatable discounts and bonuses across the Bitsy exchange, OTC platform, and more. Go to bitsy.com slash pomp. Again, B-T-S-E, Bitsy, B-T-S-E.com slash pomp, bitsy.com slash pomp to get a 10% discount on your Bitsy Elite membership. The second sponsor is Helium. The Helium Hotspot is a new product that enables the people, not the telcos, to own and operate a wireless network in their city for Internet of Things devices. I've got one in my apartment. The telcos have forever held a monopoly on any sort of wireless network. Now, the Helium Hotspot is helping to democratize that ownership. You can literally earn crypto for helping to build the network and providing connectivity to Internet of Things devices by sending small bits of data. So join the movement today, get your Helium Hotspot, and help to break up the telco's monopoly. You can be a part of the democratized, decentralized solution. Your Helium Hotspot comes with $50 off if you use the code POMP at helium.com, H-E-L-I-U-M.com, helium.com, use code POMP, and you'll get 50 bucks off. Lastly, don't forget that I read a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy-to-understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with John. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I have the man, the myth, the legend himself. What's going on, John? <laughs> I love the bang, bang, man. That's that's my thing, too. <laughs> I, just for the record, John's the first person to ever start the podcast off with finger guns. We're, we're already into the finger guns. We're ready to rock and roll. Bang, bang, uh, bang, bang. <laughs> so for, for like the one person watching this who doesn't know who you are, never seen you on television, uh, let's go through your background, kind of where, uh, where'd you grow up and what'd you do before you got into financial markets? Sure. Um, Pomp, I, uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco. 
Lived there till I was 12, loved it. We used to go down to Haight-Ashbury and uh, drive around and check out the freaks, as we used to call them. That was before I became politically correct. Now I would just call them hippies. Um, but we always had a good time. Uh, and, you know, it, it was never a heckling thing or anything else. We would just, my dad's a doctor, and so that's where I took my nickname from, Dr. J, from my dad, uh, more or less to honor him. Um, but when he was a, a surgeon in San Francisco and an assistant chief of surgery there, he would have people fly in from all over the world to learn various surgical techniques because he was one of the first people to successfully do liver transplants, pancreas transplants, things like that. So he would teach uh, people from all over the world. And since San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury um, was kind of uh, top of mind for a lot of people, they'd uh, say, hey, can we go down and see the hippies? <laughs> so my dad would say, boys, get in the car. We're going down. But make sure you roll up the windows because those guys have, have lice. <laughs> but so we would drive down to Haight-Ashbury and, you know, it would look exactly like you think it would look. A bunch of wonderful Victorian homes, lots of men and women with long hair, big glasses, day or night, you know, big sunglasses, and, uh, you know, monster bell-bottom jeans and things like that. Exactly what you think it would look like, that is what it looked like. And San Francisco, you know, the city by the bay, I loved it. I, uh, I went back there briefly to Berkeley for school, um, to the University of California, uh, because we moved when I was 12, Pomp, to uh, Minneapolis. My dad took a job as chief of surgery at the University of Minnesota. So we moved to Minneapolis. Um, loved that because there was snow and season changes. San Francisco, it's pretty much the same year-round. It's, you know... Uh, it's cold and foggy in the morning, and then it gets cold and foggy again in the evening. But in between, it could be sunny or rainy. Um, and it was just a fun city. I loved growing up there. And then when we went to Minnesota, like I say, we had very harsh changes in the season from fall to all of a sudden 60 below, you know, a month later. Um, so the season change was a big deal, but that was also fun. And I got to go to, uh, uh, let's see, uh, high school with Prince and uh, a bunch of these famous musicians. If they weren't famous in high school, they were just uh, interesting fellows because <laughs> I got bussed into a uh, mostly black high school. So I went from uh, Lily White, San Francisco, Lily White um, uh, Junior High School, to all of a sudden being bussed into an all-black high school. And uh, it was a little, not scary, but you know, you were always on edge. So I bet I know how a lot of African-Americans or blacks feel when they go to an all-white high school. You know, they probably are on edge too. Uh, but some of my greatest friends and friendships were made, you know, from that. And uh, back then, yeah, we had gangs, but the gangs didn't shoot you, Pomp. You know, the gangs, worst case scenario, a gang would beat you up. Now, you didn't want that, but, you know, 
I played football, so all the guys on the team were my friends, but they weren't going to walk me home every day. So <laughs> I had to frequently run from the football, you know, from showering up after football practice, kind of looking both ways and making a dash <laughs> to get to a safer neighborhood because if I got caught in the wrong neighborhood, um, again, I think it builds kind of a uh, um, uh, empathy for somebody who would be the opposite, you know, like I say, for a, an African-American or Asian kid that was in an all white school where they didn't feel so comfortable walking through that neighborhood either. But like I say, um, it ended up working out great. I uh, have enjoyed both the friendships and the uh, experience of not being in the high school that I thought I would have been in. Yeah, that's awesome. And then what did you guys do for uh, for college? Because you have a, a twin brother, correct? You guys are twins? No. no. See, everybody thinks that, though. Um, uh, and not everybody, but a lot of people say, oh, you must be twins. Nope, six years apart. Really? Yep. Pete is the youngest of four boys. I am the oldest. Um, so I'm six years older than Pete, four years older than Paul, and two years older than Dave. So... so you don't know this, but I am the oldest of five boys. Ah. I, I am eight years older than the youngest, and everyone in between is two years apart. So uh, very similar. We just have one more than you do. What are the two brothers in the middle doing? Um, one brother, David, uh, he sold a bunch of uh, fast food franchises that he started with my brother, Paul. Um, and now he runs... Uh, um, a health club that he owns. He owns this big building, you know, that's got a health club. So that's been challenging, of course, during COVID because by law, they had to stay shuttered. Um, and he has uh, several ice cream parlors and he kills it with the ice cream. Uh, he's only open in the summer, but he absolutely kills it. You know, they're scooping out these gigantic, you know, scoops of ice cream and people come from all over the city to his ice cream shops because they overserve so much. And uh, the other one sadly passed away of ALS. Uh, so that was really a crappy thing. Uh, my brother Paul passed away now five years ago um, of ALS. Got it. Sorry to hear that. And, yeah, and then, it, why did life? Yeah, absolutely. And, and why did you and uh, the youngest, why? the kind of bookends, if you will, want to go into the financial markets, whereas uh, your other brothers went more into entrepreneurship? Well, um, I did it because I was playing football for the Bears, um, and that's what brought me to Chicago. Um, I was not a, uh, a high draft choice or anything like that. I was a free agent, which meant that, um, just for the folks that don't know, um, if you're not drafted, you can go to any team that offers you a contract. So I had three teams that offered me a serious contract, discussions with a couple other teams. Um, I ended up picking the Bears because I thought, you know what? They have a really crappy team. <laughs> no, but you know, think about it. It's just like, do you, do you wanna, if you're gonna join um, and try to beat somebody out for a job, um, do you want to go to Apple, where everybody's a killer, you know, where all those engineers are killers? Or do you want to go to a shitty, 
um, place where you you might be as good as any of the engineers they have. You know, that was my that was how I did it, Pomp, with uh, you know weighing, do I want to be, um, you know, do I want to try to play for New England, you know, where they're Super Bowl champ kind of things, or do I want to go to a team where they haven't been anywhere forever, they suck, and the linebackers aren't that good. That was my position, linebacker. And so, and that's, you know, both cockiness on my part, me thinking, oh, I'm better than those professionals, which I wasn't. Um, but I do, do think that you'd want to pick a place where you think you might be able to make the team. If you're drafted, you don't get that choice. You just, you know, you go. And if, if you're a high round draft pick, you're going to make it. You know, nobody cuts their first round pick until the second year or third year. <laughs> but, you know, uh, as far as free agent, it was great. Brought me to Chicago. Um, so when I learned the ropes, my brother Pete, who was, like I say, six years younger, he was still in high school. So, you know, because I came right after college, he's still in high school. He's deciding where he's going to go play college football. And uh, after he was an All-American and a big star at University of Minnesota, um, he went down and he played for Seattle, the Seahawks. Then he played for the Vikings. Then he played for Tampa Bay. Then he played for the Raiders. And each time in the offseason, he'd come and visit me here in Chicago. And he'd always say, God, it really has a cool energy, a cool vibe down here on the floor. And I said, yeah, it does. You know, that's why I love it. That's why, you know, 3,000 men and women on the floor, that's why they love it. Uh, but it's also, uh, I'm sure you see this all the time. There are probably people who are so into blockchain and crypto or digital assets, but they're into it because they want to make a lot of money. Um, you're into it because you can make money, but also you're into it because you love it. There are probably every year, give or take 700 to 1,000 people that leave the floor. And they don't leave because they retired with a big pile of money. You know, they, they left because they couldn't hack it. They couldn't make it. So that churn just stays there all the time. So of the 3,000 people, 2,000 of them are probably happy and 1,000 of them are probably churning and leaving and coming back and, you know, trying to get refunded and all that stuff. So, you know, if you are somebody who finds that fun and exciting and, you know, that's why, Pomp, I'm always pumping my fist on TV or, you know, shooting the guns or whatever, bang, bang, uh, because, you know, it just, it, I, I enjoy what I do. And I know you do because, you know, we've talked and I've seen the people that, you know, come to your events and things like that. The people that just love, uh, they, they actually love the idea, not just the idea of getting rich. Um, the idea of getting rich, that's really an easy sell. <laughs> but it's a little harder to get excited about actually doing this every day and making this, you know, your vocation. Yeah, it's one of these weird things where uh, when you talk to people who uh, seem to be successful and you ask them, why do you do what you do? Majority of the people I've talked to will answer some form or fashion of, I enjoy the process of this. 
right? It, it, the product or kind of the end result takes care of itself, right? It's kind of a, a football way of thinking of like, hey, look, we got to do every single play. And as long as everyone does their job, every offensive play is drawn up to be a touchdown. And every defensive play is drawn up to stop them for a loss, right? And it yep. really just comes down to kind of the process and execution, all this kind of stuff. And so it feels like the people who end up being successful, they enjoy that process. And it's the process or kind of showing up every single day for year after year after year. That's what ultimately leads them to the success. And to your point, the people who either don't enjoy it, can't, you know, hack it or whatever it is, they're the ones who kind of wash out and, and go do, find other things to do in life, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And And you can't really... Some people will kind of sell their soul to be an investment banker or, you know, some other job in finance that their heart isn't really in it. And they do it for a couple of years. Maybe they make just enough, but they're always looking for a way out. And I was never looking for a way out. I was looking to stay in as long as I could. But, you know, the, the game changes. And, you know, every financial uh, edge that people think they have goes away eventually. Um, and you have to develop something new. Um, that doesn't mean you can't own, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or Microsoft or Apple forever. You could, but if you're trying to make a, you know, a living day by day trading in and out, you know, and all of a sudden computer algorithms are taking all the edge away, it's a little tougher. For sure. So when you ended up uh, deciding to leave the NFL, where, what did you do at first? Did you go right to the trading pits or, or kind of what was that uh, journey like? And, and what was kind of the impetus for um, going into that environment? Sure. It's a, it is a very good question because, uh, A, I didn't leave of my own volition. <laughs> they fired me. <laughs> they cut me. Um, and, you know, it was one of those deals, Pomp, where literally they uh, come to your door knock on the door and say, I know I'm going to get cut tomorrow. I know I'm going to get cut. And they'd leave because they couldn't face that. Um, and uh, when it happened to me, I, I was pretty sure that I was going to be cut, but um, I uh, was still in enough denial, you know, the river in Egypt where I thought, well, you know, couple of these other guys left. Maybe they need an extra linebacker to hang around before Singletary. You know, what if he hurts himself or whatever? He never did. The guy was like unstoppable. And that's the guy that beat me out, Mike Singletary. So he did a great job. Um, he was very good guy too. So it would be easy to hate the guy that, you know, that takes the job from you. But this guy was just such a good guy. You couldn't hate him. And I've always been a guy also that's pretty uh, um, honest with myself as far as my abilities. So when I meet somebody who is better than me, could be in trading. You know, I've met guys that are better than me. It could be in skiing. Um, and it happened to be in football, you know. And I was just like, yeah, I get it. He's better than me. And the coach was like, yeah, we're sorry, you know, not everybody can make it. You know how it is, John, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, hey, man, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I mean, look, to be uh, completely frank, right, uh, playing linebacker for the Chicago Bears, uh, no matter how long it was, is uh, is one, amazing. And then two, 
to uh, to hang out and meet with uh, guys like Mike Singletary and, and kind of all of the players that uh, that went through that organization is obviously uh, a life experience a lot of people won't have, right? Yeah, I I agree. And luckily, I had one bad injury in high school and nothing after that. So, you know, I've seen guys with their shoulders cut, their knees cut, their hands. My brother Pete has broken every finger at least once and his thumbs twice. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of injuries and things that guys get that I luckily avoided. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and so help me understand, as you uh, decide, okay, I'm going to go uh, kind of and build a career in finance and trading, did you already know people and kind of have a backup plan? Was it like, okay, I got cut, and now all of a sudden I got to go figure this out? Like, what, what happened kind of post getting cut from the NFL that eventually launched the, the career in finance? Uh, again, that's a great question because um, since my dad was a doctor and he was pretty famous, I mean, in his field, he was, you know, like at, if not the zenith, you know, right up there on the top of the mountain. Um, he developed a bunch of anti-rejection drugs for uh, uh, people when they got transplants and things like that. So he was very famous and he's the chief of surgery at the University of Minnesota for like 38 years. Um, so the choices were, I could go up there, but I, I could stay there, but I'd always be in his shadow, I thought. And no shame in that, but I wanted to kind of forge my own path. And so my agent was uh, putting some of his uh, representative players because he had hockey players, uh, skiers, baseball players, that kind of stuff. I mean, famous people like Rod Carew and Alan Page, they were his clients. So he was putting some of those guys on the trading floor because they had what uh, he thought was necessary to be successful in trading. They were disciplined. They were um, excitable. <laughs> they were physical. Um, and he thought those kinds of things would make you a good trader. Um, now, he knew, you, of course, you needed to learn the, all the other stuff, too. But if you didn't have those things, some people were putting, like, professional blackjack players on the floor. Because if you can count cards, you can be a pretty good trader. And I agree, that's a good skill. Um, I knew a guy that could count three decks of cards um, and, you know, beat you on virtually every hand. Um, be, and he was banned. He had to, you know, when he'd go to Vegas or Reno, he'd have to go in a wig and things like that. I mean, you know, they, he was kicked out of more casinos, but he was not good in the pit, even though he was a good trader because he wasn't aggressive enough. Um, and so, like I say, my agent was looking for guys that were aggressive that could learn the other stuff. Some of these guys were like professional chess players, you know, grandmasters in chess. And you might imagine that you and I probably know guys, Pomp, that are like that. They tend not to be terribly aggressive. <laughs> you know, it's all up here. And so they'd put on a position and they'd walk away. And, you know, hopefully they put on enough edge that they could make money from putting that position on but they couldn't stand down there in the pit and grind it out um, like the rest of us could because they weren't aggressive enough. It's a physical 
you know, back then anyway, it was very physical. You couldn't hit people, but you could throw elbows and things like that. People didn't want you standing in their spot. Um, so being bigger, um, I'm still about 6'2 and 215. Back then I was 6'2, maybe 250. Um, so I was a bigger guy, you know, broader shoulders and things. So you could intimidate people. And that was very valuable in the pit. Um, so, and, and, and John, explain that a little bit more, because there's a lot of people listening who have no idea how the pits worked, especially back then. And when you're talking about uh, it being more physical and kind of the jockeying for positions and things like that, like unpack that a little bit and, and explain what was happening. Sure. Well, um, so you're in the trading pit and a pit is an octagon, just like, you know, the UFC fights in, except um, they have steps that go up. Um, usually like three or four feet in the air. Each step is, let's say, you know, six or eight inches. So there might be four steps up, um, four steps down into the middle of the pit. Um, and each ring, if you will, of that pit is about 18 inches wide. So you could stand on that, but it's not exactly like standing on a two by four. There's enough room that you can kind of walk around on it but you could also fall off of it. <laughs> and, um, you know, so sometimes when traders were standing in their spot, if all of a sudden a trade was happening on the other side of the pit, everybody would rush towards that side of the pit. Sold, 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 sold. And they're stumbling down the steps and things as they go over to that side of the pit. So the pits are set up so that um, from the top ring of the pit, you can see all the trading desks around the floor. If you're down in the middle of the pit, you can't even see out of the pit. You're just looking at guys' bellies and things like that. So the more active trader you are, you're at the top. Um, and the less active you are or the newer you are, you're down at the bottom. Um, so the guys at the bottom tended to hold positions for a long time. The guys that want to buy, sell, buy, sell all day long, they're at the top. And the brokers want to stand next to the guy that's actively trading because by rule, they can't trade against their own paper. So if I have an order from a customer, I'm calling that paper, I cannot take the other side of this trade. I have to open outcry it into the pit and say, 55 calls, and the pit screams back, you know, one to a quarter, and I can say, I'll pay 115. And then they might say, at a quarter, at a quarter, at a quarter. And then if I can't buy them at 115 and the order is not held, meaning I can pay any price I want, I might say, 100 and 100, I bought 200, I'm out. I'm 115 bid for 200 more or whatever. So that trade would happen with those two guys. They'd all write each other's names down on the pit on the card rather, the sellers would write down who they sold to, the buyer would write who he bought from, and then they'd turn in their cards. So all of this got processed um, at the end of the day when I started. Then as trading became faster and faster and faster, it eventually moved to handheld computers. Then it moved to, you know, at almost light speed to laptops and, 
then you don't need traders on the floor anymore. Now you can make that market pop from New York or from Philly or from Macau. It doesn't matter. Um, so you don't need to be in the pits anymore. So the pits went from very uh, profitable places to be where, you know, if there's 3,000 traders down there, you know, they might be taking a couple billion dollars home every year. And all of a sudden, you know, most of that gets taken by high frequency guys. And now the traders on the floor these days, you know, if you're still on the floor, maybe you make a hundred, 150,000 bucks instead of a couple million or 10 million, whatever you could make before. And you multiply that times, you know, two or 3,000. So you get where, you know, the, the big change came from. Now there's almost no one on trading floors. It's all by machine. Yeah, and, and it's always struck me, uh, like the New York Stock Exchange floor, for example, there's still some people walking around. Uh, you look at the old school photos compared to today and it's you know, night and day difference. It almost feels like the people actually on the floor uh, are almost there as more of a uh, ceremonies type thing right? Where it just feels like we got to have somebody there. We can't just have servers all over the floor. So, you know, let's, I don't know, we'll put 50 people out there. Uh, but, but what are they actually doing, right? Are, are they literally there for more of a ceremonious thing and they just, it's their personal preference to be on the floor and kind of just use their computer from the floor? Or is there some purpose other than that? Well, like the New York Stock Exchange, they have kept a couple of carve outs for the traders on the floor. They see certain information um, like the end of the day when they say, well, on, on balance, there's two billion to buy or whatever. They see that first. They know it before anybody else. Now, most of them are filling paper, meaning that they're brokers. They're not traders. Um, and that's no disrespect, but that's just what it is. You know, they're, they're not trading. They are brokers. They're filling paper. So they're um, offering insights and best, you know, I'm going to try to get you the best price, you know, and I've had a relationship with this guy for 10 years. So I think he's great at getting me the best price um, and seeing blocks that might come in, getting out of the way and letting it fall a little bit, then he buys it at a cheaper price for me. That's why they're still there. But most of those traders are brokers. Now, the exception is the, uh, options pits at the uh, CME. They have corn options, bean options, wheat options, all that kind of stuff. Um, you kind of smile and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I bet they're really, act no, they actually still trade in those pits. They still have traders and brokers. But most of the other pits around the rest of the world, it's really just like you say, They've negotiated to keep themselves in the mix. So it's not just ceremonial, but there's really not as strong a purpose for them to be there. Why have some of the commodity pits survived? So things like corn, et cetera, like why are they still um, not only there, but, but also active, whereas others have kind of gone the way of more electronic trading? I think only by mandate. I mean, in other words, if, if the exchange and the members have a deal where they say, hey, we want, you know, there to always be some open outcry trading on the floor. Um, that's the only reason it still goes on. Everything else can be done on computer. I'm not saying it's better. Um, having, for instance, as 
when the crap hit the fan in uh, March pump and all, all of a sudden, whether you're trading the S&Ps or whether you're trading in the VIX pit, when things are blowing up, you're better off having everybody getting the information at the same time in the pit than having everybody in offices upstairs and they're all suspicious because that's what it is. They're all suspicious then. They see an order coming in and they don't know who it is. When it comes in on the floor and they can all see it at the same time, they know that's coming in from JP Morgan. They know that's coming in from BlackRock or whatever. Um, but when it's upstairs, they, you know, it's silent. It's kind of like, you know, alien in space. Can anybody hear you scream? I mean, when a trade happens in the ether, there's nothing, there's no information at all. It's just kind of like the trade comes in, people interact with it. You don't know how big it was. You don't know, you know, if it fell into a guy's lap over on, you know, that you think is a great trader or a guy that's a shit trader. Um, and it falls into weak hands. And all of a sudden, you know, the market moves just a little bit and everybody's selling because this guy is scrambling to sell out rather than if it falls into somebody with strong hands, meaning they've probably got hundreds of millions behind them or whatever, and they hold it for that 10 cent loss and all of a sudden it click, 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 runs to the upside and they're making dollars off of this, you know, huge trade they took down. You know, it makes a difference. When you see it in the pit, it makes a difference. When you can't see it, it's just silent. And that's when there's, a lack of trust. Things that I've noticed is people who started out in the pits or got exposed to that world when they were kind of really rocking and rolling, they have a very different understanding of markets and market structure. And, and it, it really seems like they had access to uh, and understand the importance of intangible um, type information, right? So what I mean is, you know, good traders versus bad traders, who's actually sending in that market order? Who does that person represent from a trading perspective? How much capital is behind them versus not, right? All that type of stuff. And it feels like now that we've kind of gone into this electronic world, the people who have that uh, kind of historical context and information, they actually understand markets better, right? They, they do have some level of advantage. Um, do you see the same thing in your experience? Or do you feel like maybe that's just coming from somebody who I wasn't around when um, the pits were really kind of rocking and rolling like that? And so it's more of like a nostalgia thing more so than anything else. Well, um, I think it's... Uh... It's definitely a skill, uh, pit trading, that's different um, and doesn't necessarily translate that well to the uh, uh, you know, screen-based trading. Um, because just like you say, um, if there's a Schwab broker on that side of the pit and uh, you know, TD broker on this side, Merrill and you know, Lehman Brothers back in the day, Bear Stearns, different brokers are representing different papers. So, you know, coming through Schwab, it's retail. You know, it's even though they might try to mask it occasionally with, you know, a big trader might come in through something that they call a beard, you know, coming through uh, as a retail trade, you know, by the size and how aggressive both the trade and the broker are, um, that it's something different. Um, so, in other words, we all want to trade uh, with somebody who's slower than us, who doesn't have as much access to information. And that differential pump back in the day was, you know, Grand Canyon, 
right? Because it really was, it was huge. You would have guys that, you know, had news flows that were faster, guys that, you know, we would get, uh, you know, long before news reading algorithms and things like that, um, there were people that, you know, got tipped off by somebody when news was about to break, um, as illegal as that might sound. Now, nobody's faster than the algorithms. The algorithm is going to see keywords that somebody has programmed for their buy and sell programs to react to. Um, and you see it and it happens like that. And there's no way to get in front of everything from the employment data to the ISM to Michigan, you know, consumer confidence, you know, whatever it is. So to your point, um, there were definitely people that had that edge, uh, whether it was informational edge um, or whether it was the ability to read, um, you know, to know the difference between a Schwab order on this side of the pit and an E-Trade order over there. And, you know, that JP Morgan, you know, order that's coming in for a hedge fund. Uh, and you don't want to be on the other side of Bobby Axelrod. Um, so when Bobby's coming in and he wants to buy a lot of something, you don't want to be on that ticket. You want to be the last guy on that ticket. So for instance, that's what Warren Buffett has done forever. Warren Buffett owns General Reinsurance. And General Re um, is always the last one to write that reinsurance ticket. You know, everybody else has piled on there. And then the last 200 mil, the last 500 mil, whatever it is, is Warren Buffett. You know, it's, it's him doing that. Because everybody else is taking the risk. He gets to look. And, you know, if that thing's not getting funded properly, those other guys are screwed. He's not screwed. So anyway, uh, to your point, um, the democratization that has occurred with information flows over Twitter, which, you know, there's not a lot of things Twitter's good for, quite frankly. But one of the things that Twitter is good for is information that's almost instantaneous. So if you want to see something, if you don't have um, a high-speed data feed that costs you 20,000 bucks a month, Twitter's the next best thing. You got to know where to, who to follow and how to get it. But it's there. Um, so if you're looking for certain keywords and things like that, you will find them faster on Twitter than you will doing a Google search or anything else. But um, do you really want to try to trade against, you know, basically guys that are much, much faster than you? And my answer is no. I want to follow those guys and coattail those guys. That's why Pete and I always call what we do following the smart money. But I don't want to try to compete with those guys. They're always going to be faster than me. Unless I want to spend 100,000 bucks a month and then have a, an IT staff, you know, the size of Goldman's or um, Virtus or DRW or any of these guys. Um, unless you can do that, um, you're not going to be as fast as that. I think it makes a, a ton of sense. Help me understand what you guys are doing with Market Rebellion. So you, you had it up on the on the Zoom background, and uh, and you guys have been talking about it a lot online and everything. What, what is Market Rebellion, and what are you guys doing with it? Sure, happy to. Um, we are over at Market Rebellion. We're um, 
basically uh, using the same sort of uh, techniques that we used to train people years ago that were our own traders. So in other words, when you came down to the floor, and as I said, if you're a chess grandmaster, or if you're a card counter from Vegas, and you learn some of the basics of floor trading, um, you can start to you know, understand how to make markets. But you still have to be big or at least aggressive. And then you have to know how to lay off risk and all these other things and know how to cut your losses, let the winners run. So we trained hundreds of our own traders over the years. And once they got good enough, they'd always leave. You know, as they used to be kind of a joke, they'd say Lincoln freed the slaves. Um, but you know, when you're a trader backing another trader, um, there's no greater compliment than that trader leaving you and going off on his own or her own, because that means you really trained them, they know what they're doing. Um, and none of us, at least I never did, try to tie anybody up to a contract and say, no, you've got to work for me for three years, you know, you know it, that's, that's crazy. Um, but some people did it. Um, most of the time, what traders would do when we were training a trader is, I would put up the money for you, Pop, and I'd put up, say, 50 grand. And I'd say, okay, you know, you've been clerking with us, you understand what you're doing, I have confidence in you, here's 50 grand, go out there and make us some money. And you'd go into the pit and start trading. And if you started losing money really fast, we'd cut you off. But if, you know, since we trained you, we taught you what to look for and all that kind of stuff. You probably started making money and all of a sudden I give you more and more money. Now, eventually I've given you a quarter of a million dollars and you're making money. Once you've made me my quarter million back, um, I'm probably on a like a 60-40 my way split on that. So when you make $200,000, you don't get 200000 I get 120, you get 80 kind of thing. Once we get to, you've paid me my 200 back. Um, now I'm like, okay, Pomp, um, I'll do a deal with you where it's 60, 40 your way. And you're like, okay. And now you're really grinding hard. And then you're making money. And I say, okay, now it's 70, 30 your way. Um, and then eventually you leave because you're going to say, I want to make all the money for me. And I'm like, yeah, you should. Um, so you're out there trading Th those what, when you say, what is market rebellion? We took all the same uh, training that we used for our traders and we basically systematized it, put it online and people can go through it chapter by chapter and learn. Here's how you manage risk. Here's how you cut losses. Here's how you take profits because you got to be pulling profits off the table just as aggressively as you're cutting losses. And then here are a bunch of spreads. Here's a bunch of different ways you can um, make more money than just straight out scalping. So Market Rebellion is our version of what we used to give our traders. And um, we have basic, intermediate, advanced. We've got coaches, we've got mentors. You know, depending on how much time somebody's got, they might just learn at night because you know it's it's just a distance learning product. They can log on anytime they want, 
watch it for 20 minutes, go put the kids to bed, watch it again, whatever. They've got to pass a, a, a test every chapter to get through it. And that's not, so we, we don't get any additional money, but that's to make sure that you know what you think you know before you move on. Uh, because otherwise, you know, you, you could end up getting in trouble instead of making money. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it feels a lot like, um, you know, regardless of the assets, trading for the most part, right? A lot of the things you're talking about is very systematic, right? There's things around understanding the market structure, understanding risk, understanding when to take profits off, understanding options, you know, all this type of stuff. And, and do you feel like um, investors in general, not just ones who, who go through market rebellion, but, but just investors in general are kind of waking up to this world of now there's the ability with um, everything from fractional shares to zero cost trading, like more and more people are saying, hey, look, I, I want to go play in the financial markets and there's more access, but they are seeking out that type of education. Or are you still have a fear that there's so many people going into the markets that just don't have the knowledge really necessary to, to set them up for success? Well, I, I see both. Um, and quite frankly, through one of the main things that you kind of identified indirectly, which is uh, um, Robinhood, um, you know, one of the free trading place. And, you know, I admit when it first, when I first started to see a lot of the flow from the Robinhood type traders, I was somewhat dismissive of it. But um, especially in light of COVID, I've seen a lot of smart young men and I, I imagine women that are doing smart trades. And um, this isn't rocket science. Um, you know, if it was, I wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> um, it's uh, trading like I say, is addictive. It's fun. Um, it's especially fun when you're when you know enough how to not lose a lot. Uh, because that's what it's all about. It's not about making a lot. It's about not losing a lot. Um, because then when you uh, have the experience, just as you know, obviously, um, now you can lay into bigger and bigger trades and feel more confident about making money. So for instance, Robinhood, uh, well, our business has doubled every month of this COVID. Um, and I say that um, not because Pete and John are so great, and we've got a great staff of uh, men and women that work with us, but literally we have doubled in March, in April, in May, and in June, doubled the, the size of the business. And I think, Pomp, it's because um, you know, I'm not on TV more now than I was then. I'm on less, but I do broadcast a lot. I mean, I put out my own podcasts. I do um, various, you know, reaches to the public through, you know, Instagram and all the rest. But I don't think that's it. I think that augments it. But I think there's a lot of people that are at home that have time. And an awful lot of them are really well versed in how to use the Internet. Um, so Robinhood just being an app, cause it's not really a trading platform. It's an app. Um, and again, that's not meant to be derogatory. You know, I'm not meaning to denigrate them when I say that, but when you have a bunch of people that are used to, you know, typing with their thumbs and checking out their phone all the time, and they know how to, you know, follow people on Twitter and on Instagram and on Snapchat and on, 
TikTok even, you know, and they're getting all this information. Many of those things I just named, you can get information damn near instantaneously. And so you've got a guy like Davy Day Trader Global, right? You know, you've got Portnoy. And a lot of these people probably watch him and listen to him and the guy should be a freaking comedian. I mean, he is. And he's a pretty good trader too, by the way. Um, I'm not just saying that, you know, watching what he does and how he does it, I'd say he's a pretty good little trader. And he's self-taught from what I can tell. And I love the way he goes after Buffett and me probably, I haven't heard that, but you know, he, I could easily see him, you know, I've got the tie on because I just came off of CNBC, but you know, he hates the suits. He's always talking about, oh, he's freaking suits. They think they know everything. Does some 94 year old guy in Omaha know that I don't know? Nothing. You know, I know numbers. I know, you know, airline seats. I know this, I know that, you know, he's just, I love him, but I think a lot of that entices the folks that are that are at home and that are watching him and they're kind of chuckling, but then they're kind of also seeing, wow, you know, he's talking about Carnival and it's up two bucks today. You know, that's 20% for a $10 stock or whatever. Wonder if I could make some money trading in Robinhood. So they go in there and like you say, fractional shares. Oh, you don't have enough for 100 shares? Here's 20 shares, here's one share. And they kind of learn it and they're getting the hang of it. And, you know, I'm sure there are some spectacular losses uh, because there always are. Like I said, in a professional environment, like down on the trading floor, we would turn over almost a third every year. And most of it isn't people that are leaving because they got rich. You know, they're leaving because they couldn't hack, couldn't take the pressure couldn't take the losses, um, lost a backer, whatever it might be, you know, they, they couldn't do it. So to think that you probably have about the same from people at home, home gamers, as we call them, you know, people that are trying to trade and make a living. But it's, it's also um, one of the things that I've observed forever, Tom, um, is that if I want to make, you know, 100 grand a year, 200 grand a year, I could do it falling out of bed. Um, because I've done it for a while. So it's not hard, you know, and think about that. If I want to make 200 grand a year, there are 256 trading days in a year. So I only have to net, you know, let's say what, seven, 800 bucks a day. If you can't do that sitting in front of your computer all day, Moving the odds in your favor, you know, you're at a blackjack table. It's the way we always tell our traders. You're at a blackjack table. Um, you don't have to accept, you don't have to bet. You don't have to put even, you know, the, uh, you, you don't have to um, ante anything. You can just sit there and sit there and say, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And all of a sudden, you're, you've been counting the shoe and the dealer's got a bunch of face cards in there. And you're like, okay, I'm in. Um, buying 500 shares of Carnival. I'm buying 500 shares of Apple. I'm buying a thousand shares of Facebook, whatever it is. And all of a sudden those things, because of the setup you think you saw that is actually working now, all of a sudden that thousand shares of Facebook, Facebook moves a point and a half. You just made 1500 bucks. So now the deal is, are you smart enough or are you too greedy 
you only needed to make 700 a day to get to your 200,000 or quarter of a million goal. So take that freaking money off the table, or at least take most of it off the table. Carnival's starting to move for you or against you, cut it or add to it or whatever. But again, keep in mind, you are there to make your fifth, you know, your 700 or a thousand bucks. You don't have to push it to three or 4,000. If you can do that, you're talking about 600,000, 800,000 a year. But if your goal was 200 and now you're pushing it and maybe you're out on the ragged edge because you're leveraged, you know, you're in margin and God knows in your world, Pop, you know, you could be, you know, getting 50 to one leverage uh, on, you know, various digital assets and on the options on those digital assets, which is, you know, risk on crack. You know, you could do all that, but is that the right thing? In other words, I think there are plenty of people who can do it. And there's a lot of people who get enticed into or fool themselves into thinking, yeah, I, I have, I'm Davy Day Trader Global, you know, 5,000 a day. If I do 5,000 a day, I'm making a million a year. And all of a sudden, you know, the market reverses and they're sitting there and they're going, oh my God, you know, I was up 1,500 and I pushed for five and now I'm down 3,000. That means I've got to make, you know, four days worth of 700 just to get back to break even. As long as they're disciplined, they can win in this game. But there will be a lot of them that will lose because they don't have the discipline. I think it's a great way to look at it. It's just breaking it down into kind of day by day. And, and again, going back to kind of how we started the conversation about just showing up every day, right? In and out and understanding and, and believing in and enjoying that process. Um, you, you and uh, your brother and, and a number of people around you have uh, become very big, uh, or maybe not big, but uh, have become more excited about Bitcoin and digital assets and uh, have started to actually make investments in the space. So maybe just talk us through um, kind of how you guys evaluate uh, Bitcoin and the crypto markets uh, in light of kind of the rest of your portfolio and then what you guys have done uh, in the crypto space. Sure. Well, I've probably got somewhere between and on a, on a monthly basis, because I don't trade that often. Um, I'm not like in and out, in and out during the day like you, Pop. Um, but um, on a monthly basis, I probably have between 5 and 10% in digital assets and almost all of it's Bitcoin. Um, a little Ethereum, um, but mostly Bitcoin. Um, I've got a little Litecoin, a little Stellar, um, but really I'm about Bitcoin. And I'm there because um, guys like yourself, guys like uh, uh, Peter Brigger over at Fortress, who really got me you know, psyched about it. Um, Max Kaiser always likes to tell me, Oh, yeah, I told John to buy it. This, I love you, Max, but I don't remember you telling me to buy it when it was freaking 40. You probably told a bunch of people, but you didn't tell me. I would have loved it if you did. Um, but uh, I love Max. I mean, he's a funny dude. And he, you know, randomly pop, he will put out a tweet that says, I told all these guys, and he'll list like 10 of us. Uh, to buy Bitcoin at 40 bucks or whatever. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I wish you did, because if you did, I'd be rich. Um, but I first got involved at about 300, 
realized I didn't know what the hell I was doing in it. Um, didn't get involved again until it was closer to 1700. So I missed an awful lot of that. Um, and I didn't sell when it got over 18 or 19,000. I didn't liquidate. Um, I would have looked like a genius if I did, uh, but then we all would. Um, I Right now, uh, Pete and I put an investment down on Voyager, um, you know, a crypto broker run by a friend of ours, uh, Steve Ehrlich. And there were a bunch of smart investors that got into this latest round too. Um, so I wanted to get in because I think these other investors are smart. I think Steve is doing, building the business in a good way. And, you know, I've met so many. So for instance, I, I know, a lady that runs the Winkle Boss family office. Great lady, smart woman, um, Stanford grad. I think she's a chaos mathematician. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what the Winkle Vi did buying into the, uh, uh, you know, buying into Bitcoin in a big way um, and getting involved in the space, creating Gemini and all that. This is all good stuff for the space. The way I look at it, you know, Novogratz, Peter Brigger, and these guys, Fortress, um, Pantera, you know, all of these different groups that have come in in bigger and bigger ways. Um, I, I don't think they've wrecked it. I think they've made it better. And I think that it'll, you know, it's still just got a foothold that's this big compared to everything else, compared to gold, compared to stocks compared to futures. Um, but I, I think that people will, you know, and again, nothing better than COVID pop for people to realize. Now, it hasn't hurt the dollar yet. But eventually, what we're doing printing money is going to hurt the dollar. And it's going to hurt my kids. Um, it's going to hurt, you know, for years out into the future, all this printing of additional capital. And I, that's what I love about digital assets like Bitcoin. You know, I love that it's, it would really have to be a mutually assured destruction for us to have more Bitcoins than Satoki Nakamoto, <laughs> Satoshi, um, and, and whoever that group or that whatever is had created as, as the, the top level of the amount of Bitcoins out there. You know, it would take a majority of us that own coins to say, yeah, let's let's make more. <laughs> and I don't think that's in the cards. For sure. And I guess part of this and what's really interesting is we kind of have two forces at work here, right? You have kind of the um, bullishness and the market growth and the innovation that's happening in uh, Bitcoin and the crypto markets. And that by itself, I think gets, you know, a good amount of people excited. But then you bring up the other point, which is, and then you have the traditional world absolutely in chaos, right? And, and yes, the stock market's hitting all-time highs. And yeah, there's people who basically saying, hey, look, I know the world is basically burning, but I'm making money, right? So <laughs> there's kind of this, this cognitive dissonance, if you will. Uh, but at the same time, it's only going up, right, as uh, Portnoy would say, because of the structural thing of we're just injecting trillions of dollars into the market. So, of course, you're going to get the inflation of asset prices. 
Do you feel like uh, the damage to the dollar, is that more something short-term you're worried about, medium-term, long-term? Like, how do you think about when that damage actually kind of comes? And it sounds like you're of the belief that Bitcoin would be uh, kind of a beneficiary of um, some of that kind of collateral damage to some degree. Yeah. Well, um, and you'd be much more um, eloquent speaker about the topic. But here's some of the things that I've heard from folks like you um, and from you that I think play into that. Um, so longer term, yes, I think it does impact the dollar, not in the short term. Short term, we're a safe haven, just like Japan is a safe haven. Um, Japan still prints more money than we do, uh, uh, you know, borrows a ton, um, and yet uh, people haven't abandoned their currency. It's just the opposite because such a country of savers and so forth. Um, I think one of the uh, things that probably hits Bitcoin in a positive way, Pomp, beyond, you know, that we're printing money and it's making other currencies worth less, again, like Buffett says, not worthless, worth less, um, is that uh, I think we're likely to see people get frustrated by things you know, could be Biden supporters, could be Trump supporters, it could be BLM, it could be a whole bunch of things that have caused people to say, you know what, I don't know if I want, uh, especially like here in Chicago, where are you right now, Pomp? Are you in New York? I am, yep, in New York. Okay, so New York and Chicago, they burned our cities. And they, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not blaming the cops but I'm saying the cops were told to stand down, I believe in both cities. And then they burned up and down Lexington and Madison and they were obviously down on Fifth Avenue and destroying things in New York where I love to spend time, destroying things here in Chicago, up and down Michigan Avenue. And we know that wasn't the you know peaceful protesters, that was more or less career criminals that just used it as cover for them to do what they do. But I think it woke a lot of people up and a lot of people realize that there's going to be um, uh, a lot of stress on the system um, and maybe they want to get somewhere other than where we are. Um, and the most portable wealth on the planet is Bitcoin. Um, it is the most portable because all you'd have to do is have it up here. Um, you don't have to. Back in the day before there was Bitcoin pump, it would be, um, I'd hear this from my friends in Israel, or I'd hear it from friends in the Middle East, and they'd tell me, I bought, bought a bunch of American Express traveler's checks, remembered the, the, the serial number on the first and the last, and I burned them. Burned them. Why? Because now I can go anywhere and then walk into the American Express office in Geneva, Switzerland, and say, here's the here's my American Express um, traveler's checks. Here's the first. Here's the last. You know, they got destroyed. Give me my money, and they would. But you're giving up. You know, three percent or four percent to do that trade. Um, and meanwhile, in Bitcoin, you can be dumping back and forth from Bitcoin to stablecoin and doing all kinds of things. Um, while you're trading these other currencies and jumping back and forth into a stable coin or whatever, without even taking the market risk of the Bitcoin, 
um, and move anywhere you want with your money, with your wealth. And that I view as a constant demand feature. The more people that figure that out, and I know you and everybody who's been a long time Bitcoin or digital asset uh, proponent, they have said forever, yeah, you know, how do you take my Bitcoin? You know, you can't. You can't take my, but you can screw with my bank account. You can basically put an exit tax on me if I want to leave America or, you know, leave the country and give up my citizenship and go over to Switzerland or go to Italy or go to wherever. But if you have Bitcoin, they can't do that. I mean, you could literally go anywhere on the planet. No, I'm not saying that there's lots of places better than America, but I'm saying it's it's a nice insurance policy to have something that is portable wealth. And it doesn't have to be like when my um, great grandfather came here because of a genocide of Armenians, Pomp, um, he came here with bags filled with gold. Um, he wasn't that rich, but you know, obviously gold back then versus what it is now, he would have been crazy rich because gold wasn't 17 or $1,800 an ounce. But he had literally bags of gold, heavy to transport, you know, pretty significant risk of theft and all the rest. Meanwhile, Bitcoin, nobody knows you have it. I loved when I would travel back and forth in Europe over the last couple of years, and I'd be at the border, and the guy would say, yeah, anything to declare, you know, over 10,000 in currency or whatever. And I'm like, Nope. <laughs> and yet you got whatever. I mean, you know, could be tens of millions of dollars in Bitcoin and nobody's the wiser. Just words in your brain. That's yeah. how it works. Yeah. Um, one of the things is uh, it feels like Wall Street's waking up to a lot of this, right? And so there's the kind of qualitative argument, how I describe uh, why Bitcoin's important. You just did a great job of articulating it and, and you don't give yourself enough credit for understanding kind of uh, the intricacies of it. Uh, but then there's also uh, uh, more and more investors who seem to say, hey, look, wait a second, this is a tradable asset as well. So we've seen, you know, Renaissance Technologies obviously um, putting one of their filings that they're now looking at uh, Bitcoin. I can't actually remember if it was spot trading or, uh, or kind of options type trading. Uh, we've seen Paul Tudor Jones come out and say he's put about 2% of his portfolio uh, into Bitcoin. And, and so we're kind of like now, okay, there's more uh, kind of cover, cover your ass going on. Right. There's more people with big names and, and great track records that are starting to actually get exposure to Bitcoin. Do you think that that really wakes up Wall Street and we're going to see this like massive capital inflow? Or do you think it's still something that just slowly but surely over time, more and more people will opt into it? It's just going to take, you know, three, four or five years to happen. Um, and I, I don't have that crystal ball pump, so I don't know. Um, but I do know that all those people you named, as well as a friend of mine, Mark Lazary. Mark is a distressed asset buyer. That's what he does. Um, so he finds distressed assets and buys them. Now he's not saying that Bitcoin is a distressed asset. He's saying, I put, I think he said two to 5% of his net worth, and it's in the billions, um, into uh, digital assets, Bitcoin being the most prominent, I think. and. Um, I think you'll see more and more of those folks doing that. I mean, I got to believe Don Paulson, who is such a proponent of gold 
and you know famously caught the uh, uh, financial crisis and got on the right side of that. And then he got into gold. And since then, he's kind of, eh, you know, sort of said, now I'm shutting it down. I'm just going to run my family office. I guarantee you he gets into Bitcoin if he isn't already. But I think a lot of them will want to keep it quiet as they're getting in because, you know, they'll, they'll run it. Uh, I don't mean that they'll uh, run it in, in terms of how it operates. I mean, they'll push the price um, too far, too fast. So for the exact same guys that know that you don't want Goldman knowing that you're buying, you know, FireEye or Uber or Microsoft because they'll run it ahead of you, um, those same guys are sitting there thinking, I really like this play in Bitcoin here, but uh, I'm not going to say a lot about it until I got enough of this stuff because, you know, we both know that uh, blocks of it stand out. Um, and so they've got to stay under the radar with these accumulations. Um, and forever I had pomp guys coming to me. Um, two years ago, I, I probably had five to 10 calls a week from people telling me, oh, I want to buy 200 million in Bitcoin. And I'd say, no, you don't. And they'd say, oh, yeah, I do. I, I'll give you proof of funds and all that. And as soon as I'd ask for it, then they didn't have it. You know, same old crap. And it was when Bitcoin was falling from 18 on down to 35 or 3,200, whatever. Um, and it seemed like more than anything, they were trying to hold the price level by telling people like me that they had it to buy. So I would go to people and then these, you know, that had large quantities and these people would say, okay, Give me proof of funds. I'll do 50 million or I'll do 100 million with them and blah, blah, blah. And these were at four and five thousand dollars per Bitcoin, USD to Bitcoin. And I did, I think, two transactions out of at least 100. And most of them were complete BS. And I think they were just trying to, you know, manipulate the market or whatever. But same is true when it's, you know, stabilized and hanging near 10,000 now, that people are probably not wanting to see it jump to 12 and 15 and 20 again too fast because they're going to try to accumulate it at a level. That's exactly what's happening. Um, you, uh, you understand that the people who, uh, who want to buy a lot don't want the price to go up, right? Oh, yeah. um, and, and, uh, and I think that's what we're seeing. Before I wrap up, I always ask uh, people the same two questions, and then you're going to get to ask me one to finish it. Uh, the first is, what is the most important book that you've ever read? Hmm. That is a tough one. Um, hmm. One of the most important uh, would be uh, Ayn Rand. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean the Fountainhead. Um, but, uh, uh, John Galt, I just love, uh, you know, I know not everybody's a, a big fan of, uh, libertarianism. Um, and you can be, uh, you know, I know Alan Greenspan was, and Atlas Shrugged is one of, you know, those books that sort of changed my outlook. I mean, for a long time, Pomp, I would start the book and couldn't finish it. 
And some of that is because I'm dyslexic. So I, I don't enjoy reading, um, but I enjoy books. So now all I do, um, as far as books, I read newspapers because, you know, I have to, or, you know, online stuff because I have to. But as far as uh, a book, now I listen to them all on tape. So I love it because I can do it when I'm walking, when I'm working out, when I'm flying in a plane, you know, driving a long drive or whatever. I love it. So that was my best way to get through Atlas Shrugged because it is, you know, a lot to get through. But I, I loved a lot of what she wrote um, and how passionate she was about it and that Greenspan was such a big fan. And then after going through it twice now, I'd say that's probably the book for me that I would say. That's a great answer. And I'm a uh, almost 100% audiobooks as well. So, uh, so I'm there with you. Uh, the second question is more fun. Aliens, believer or non-believer? Believer. Why? <laughs> um, so I, I believed uh, that I saw um, some activity that I could not describe um, any other way except to say it was alien because um, I was coming out of an artist's studio in college and um, because a girl was screaming outside. So I was coming to her rescue, being a, a gallant young lad. So I came out and she's pointing up in the sky like this. And it was about two in the morning. Um, nobody else was around. And I looked up at what she was pointing at and it was, you know, as many have said, a cigar-shaped object um, that was lit up. And I couldn't tell how far away it was. And I'm sitting there looking at it going, what in the hell is that? And we're both just staring at it. She wasn't screaming anymore. Um, and I said, how long has it been there? And she said, it's been there for like three or four minutes. It's just sitting there. And it appeared to be over a building that was about maybe an eighth of a mile to a quarter of a mile away, not too far. Um, and we couldn't tell how big it was from that distance, but it had a steady glow, not lights going around it or anything, just a steady glow and wasn't an, a balloon or anything else. Um, it stayed at that exact spot. And then all of a sudden, Pomp, it just went you know, like back and forth like this and then boom, straight up and gone. Um, and so we were both just, what the hell was that? Now, flash forward to a Joe Rogan podcast. Not as popular as Pop, but, you know, right up there. So I'm listening to this Navy pilot talk about seeing the same tic-tac-shaped thing, you know, cigar, tic-tac, whatever, out over the ocean about, I think, four or 500 miles off the coast of California. And he's talking about, He's pinging it on radar and it's not there. And, and you know, his co-pilot, you know, the guy behind him, the weapons officer or whatever behind him is going, I got nothing on it, Skipper. And he's going, he says, all of a sudden, then it starts jamming them. And he said in the Rogan podcast, I believe, he said, jamming us is an act of war. He said, if you're jamming, uh, you know, our planes when they're out there to defend an aircraft carrier, because just a routine trip that he is out there. And he says, if you're actively jamming us, he said, that's an act of war. 
So he says, we go close to this thing now, because he said, I'm, you know, thousands of feet above it at this point. But he said, we go right down at it. And he said, it is down on the water, just above the water, and there's something beneath the water that he says looks like it might be controlling it or something. And it's a big thing, you know, like the size of a submarine or bigger under the water. And all of a sudden, this little tic-tac-y thing that he's got video of it, but he's got no radar back from it. It's being blocked or absorbed or whatever. All of a sudden, he says, this thing just goes at not the speed of light, but faster than anything. He says that any object that we know that can fly cannot move this fast. And he said, it just goes straight up and gone. And he and the co-pilot are just like, what the hell was that? And he gets back to the ship and they say, you were chasing UFOs again, huh, huh, Captain? And he goes, yep. And they go, you see any? And he throws them the VHS tape and he goes, you tell me. And the Navy has released that tape. And it's scary. It is scary. Yeah, there is something out there, my friend. I, listen, I, uh, I'm a believer. I don't know if they've come here, if they're not, but there's things that we can't explain and the math suggests that, uh, that they're out there somewhere. Yeah. Well, so then my question to you would be, have you seen them? <laughs> no, so I, I, I've never, uh, never seen aliens. The reason why I asked the question is- uh, Again, by like, the way, I haven't seen aliens. Yeah, I've you just- what I think is evidence of a ship or a vehicle of some sort that I can't explain how it got there or how it moves. Yeah, and, and the reason actually why I came up with the question, this is now almost two years ago, was I was laying in bed one day and I literally was thinking, do aliens have pets? Which is a weird question to, to think about. But if you think if somebody came here, they'd be like, wait a second. So the big animals have smaller animals on leashes and that live with them, right? And can all this stuff. And like, we just think of them as pets. But does that mean that there's like a multi-species alien, you know, kind of uh, civilization out there? And they've literally, some of the aliens are kind of in charge or more intelligent and they've got pets of, you know, other things. So I'm just thinking about that, like, we have no clue. We literally have no clue. <laughs> and, and so you just like, you could get lost thinking about all this stuff. And, and one of it is just fun, right? Two is it's kind of this like intellectual curiosity uh, exercise. But it, it just does feel like uh, we'd be pretty selfish to think that we're here alone. Yeah. Um. And the more you see, you know, again, people, credible people like that Navy pilot, um, he's got a lot more credibility than me. And he's seen <laughs> a lot of weird stuff, I'm sure. When you're up in the atmosphere as often as those guys are, um, just yeah. like some of the astronauts are now admitting that they've seen stuff up there. There's stuff you just can't explain. Now, could there be another explanation for it? No. But to see it that close, and to see them move that fast without a sound. Again, and he said they were putting it, even that pilot was saying, we had it on infrared, nothing. There's no exhaust plume. There's nothing coming off of this thing. And he's like, how the hell is it moving? It's you know, crazy. Yeah. Absolutely nuts. John, where can people find you on the internet and where, uh, where can they find Market Rebellion? Oh, you can go to uh, marketrebellion.com. Um, and it's just like the name sounds, marketrebellion.com 
forward slash get started. That's all of our uh, educational stuff. Um, and, and if they uh, want to follow me on Twitter, just at J-O-N-N-A-J-A-R-I-A-N. Just at John Najarian. You're a legend, my friend. Thank uh, you so you much. Are. Thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, listen, thank you for doing this. I, I think that you know, people get to see you on TV every day and, and kind of see everything that you're talking about. So it's awesome to kind of hear your thoughts both about, um, you know, your background and story, but also uh, how you look at Bitcoin and digital assets. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this. Thanks very much, Bob. Um, I appreciate the offer. For sure.